Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala and Zayani Bat, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Chris Ralph, Chief Investment Officer at St. James's Place. So far this year, Asian and global equity markets have enjoyed a good run. But as recently as the end of last year, the situation was not so good. Taha, why was this? And how did these indices perform? Hi, Leonora. Uh, we talked a, a lot about this uh, last year, how volatile things were, particularly uh, from October to December. Things were kind of, well, going down. I think October became known as Red October, uh, which is quite a good name. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to, to give some context... Um, in 2018 as a whole, Asian equities were down 12.2%, emerging markets were down 10 and global was global equities were down 7.7. If you look at Q4 specifically, it was 8.8, 7.4 and 12.7. So like a, a really, really tough period. Um, but yeah, let's flip that around and we look at year to date. So the figures um, up until yesterday and um, Asian equities up 15.2%, emerging market equities, uh, which encompasses quite a lot of Asia as well, which is why I'm, I'm talking about it. It's 13.3% and global equities up 15.4%. So like a really good start to the year, complete turnaround from the last three months of uh, 2018 and the first kind of opening months of 2019. Now, there's a there's a lot of reasons for this, um, but it all kind of stems back to, to global growth, which a lot of people, as we came into 2018, it seemed as if global economic growth was going to slow. Now, this stems uh, originally from a slowdown in the Chinese economy. And compounded on top of that you then had uh, geopolitics so you had trade wars you had donald trump and uh, and the chinese government kind of toing and froing about tariffs and and all of this and kind of all these free trade has been a long a, a big supporter of kind of this global growth economic growth story so kind of as soon as you start impeding that it seemed as if things were going to get worse compounded by another couple of things you had the tech trade starting to come to an end and then you also had um the federal reserve uh, which is the u.s central bank kind of tightening its monetary policy and by that I mean raising interest rates and uh, also talking about quantitative tightening which is the opposite to quantitative easing so kind of taking its financial support out of the bond market and financial markets in general. So is the outlook for Asian equities strong then? Well things are a little different this year as, as we kind of showed in the performance and the reasons for this is it's a basic reversal of everything I just said. So apart from global growth, which seems to have, well, I suppose people become more sanguine about the global economic growth and if there is a slowdown there anyway. But trade wars have been suspended. The two governments seem to be talking and have suspended their tariffs. Um, the Federal Reserve has stopped tightening, so it hasn't loosened its policy, but it said it isn't going to tighten anymore this year in terms of interest rates. Actually, the tech valuations have come down enough so that the people more kind of happy about that and also you've seen um kind of some stimulus from the chinese government which has helped um appease the kind of slowdown in chinese growth so what this means now is that because of the really bad performance last year and the fact that a lot of the reasons why that performance went down has changed it just left them really good valuations which is why we've seen such a strong start to this year now you've recently spoken to an asian equities fund manager so uh, where's he investing to uh, benefit from all this um, so I was speaking to Ayaz Ibrahim, who's um, co-manager at the J.P. Morgan Asian Investment Trust, and um, he yeah he was he was very positive. Um, I spoke to him at the start of this year, and he was saying the valuations in Asia now look incredibly good. They, the price to equity ratios are better than Europe, Japan, and the UK. Dividends were quite good. If I just throw some figures out there, forward price to earnings um, for Asia is now twelve point nine versus fourteen point seven for global equities. So you know there is a they are operating at a slight discount to the rest of the world. And um, he's been actually 
moving into very specific areas. So he he had a lot in Chinese tech. These Chinese uh, big Chinese stocks known as the bat stocks of Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Um, he didn't own all of them. He owns Tencent as his top holding. But he actually started to trim that um, in 2017 and more in 2018 as as things started to uh, kind of reverse there and he was shifting into Indian banks. And the reason for this, and we kind of, we spoke about this last week um, with the financial inclusion um, increase in India, Indian banks have, have become, um, well, the situation for Indian banks has become a lot better. Um, a lot, I think it's or towards 99% of Indian households now have access to a bank account and that's financial inclusion figures, which are better uh, than in like developed markets like such as the US. So Indian but the Indian bank story is quite good. There's uh, there are good valuations and they've got the opportunity to compound this growth as well. And why did he actually cut back on the Chinese tech? Isn't that area doing really well? The idea that you would cut back on tech and you look at the kind of performance from 2016, 2017, 2018, it seems a bit foolish. However, this was entirely based um, on on valuation concerns of the tech. So he just thought, actually, these are starting to look a bit too expensive. And the idea that other opportunities offered more compounded growth for the long term at a better valuation. Chris, would you also take the view that Asian tech stocks have had their run and should be reduced or avoided? Well, I think it, it depends on what time frame you're looking at. Uh, clearly, as Taha described, they've had a really good bounce from the lows at the end of 2018. And valuations, if you look at a company like Tencent, which Taha was just mentioning, it almost got back to it's sort of about 10% off the high in price that we saw in the middle of last year. So we saw a significant drawdown in terms of price, and it's now recovered most of that. So some of the valuations opportunities that we were just talking about um, have, a- have actually been removed. It's no- then the Chinese tech stocks are no longer looking so attractive. But if you look over the medium to longer term, with the growth opportunities, not just in China, but outside China, but definitely the big opportunity is still within China, then uh, I could easily see that uh, investing in Chinese tech over the medium to longer term would be good. It's a question of whether one feels as though in the short term there's been a sufficient recovery that uh, some managers may want to take some risk off the table. Uh, And I could easily imagine managers looking at the recovery in markets this year that I was just describing and saying, well, I've done really, really well. I can't see I'm going to make a huge amount of additional money through the rest of 2019 uh, and therefore uh, I'm going to de-risk my portfolio. Now, thinking about Asian equities more broadly mm. rather than just tech, what are they like? Are they cheap? Are they are they um, are they, are they quite um, punchy as well? Well, again, it depends on where where you look at. So, uh, in certain sectors, there have been very substantial recovery um, in uh, in price. But if you look at some of the more peripheral markets, and obviously the liquidity, the opportunity set is is much smaller. So, if you look at a market like the Philippines or Malaysia uh, over the past three years, the Philippines index has only got up about ten. Same true of Malaysia, which compares to 70 odd percent in China. And clearly, if we're talking about Asia, you shouldn't forget about Japan. I mean, Japan's a huge, huge market. And the Japanese market hasn't moved ahead so quickly as as the Chinese market has recovered through 2019. So it could certainly be argued that from a valuation perspective, there may be more opportunities as we sit here in Japan than there are China at current valuation levels. Um, I suppose drilling down a bit for mm. any specific areas you like and uh, why. I suppose talking to our fund managers about this, what what they're saying is is having seen such a good run in what I would describe as risk on parts of the market. So whether it's energy or tech related, um, certainly the 
high opportunity consumer facing parts uh, parts of the market probably there's more opportunity in the more defensive areas because they haven't risen so much so it's a, I wouldn't be surpri- at all surprised to see some portfolio managers in that area rotating out of those areas that have done well into the areas that have done less well it's classic portfolio manager behavior as Taha mentioned one benefit uh, was the easing of trade tensions between the US yep. and China Will that benefit these or other areas of Asian equities? Yeah. So as well as the reducing of trade tensions, I mean, clearly the, tr- the, the trade war is not over. No, there's uh, a lot there to no, do. There is no uh, deal that yeah. has been signed yeah. and, and we could have a long debate over whether it's a good time or mm. bad time for President Trump to be signing that, uh, signing that deal today. Um, I still think there's probably an extended period of time where there will be trade negotiations. But, but at the same time, the stimulus that's been provided to the Chinese economy to help it recover um, from those com- for those companies that were struggling because of the trade tariff situation uh, has definitely boosted uh, boosted markets so so my reading of the situation is that um, as that stimulus uh, as the impact of that stimulus to the Chinese economy begins to dissipate, and if we don't see any resolution to the the tariff situation, then some of the positivity uh, that's been associated with the recovery through the first quarter of this year may start to to reverse as we go into to the rest of the year. On that note, what are the main risks to Asian equities? The the main risk clearly is that having had stimulus to the Chinese economy, we then see uh, the reverse happening. And um, some of the previous fears that were talked about through 2018, which is why we saw such poor performance from from some Chinese equities, i.e. a substantially slowing economy, uh, an inability to um, uh, to export as much as it had in the past, and therefore a lack of um, through flow to to other countries in the region. Um, if that if that spectre returns to haunt us, then that, then investors may may look at that with some concern. So for investors who can take on these risks, I think, as you said, there's there's definitely long term potential in Asia. Uh, which funds do you suggest for getting exposure? Well, if, if I look at the the funds that that, that our clients at St James's Place have acti- uh, access to, we have a, a an Asia Asia Pacific sort of pan Asia fund, uh, but we've also got a Japanese. Um, um, specialist fund and two glo- global emerging market products. But what I think is really interesting in those is that, and we were talking about Indian banks, what, one of our managers has a much higher weighting in, in Which their portfolio. That's a manager called Wasatch. They're based in Salt Lake City in the US. Yeah. And they've got a much higher weighting towards Indian equities than our other global emerging market manager, which is which mm. is managed by Henderson. So what we try and see is some diversification across um, uh, the range of managers that we've got in the region. If if I look at it from a an Asia perspective, our manager there, which is First State Steward Asia, based in uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, they've really been focused on high quality, um, attractively valued stocks, and have done. That's a done, kind of like a typical trait of the kind of First State Steward investment style. Yeah, it, it absolutely is, yeah. uh, Leonora, and, and, and yeah. they've done a really good job mm. for us through 2018 by keeping focused on that and 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 not being lulled into some of the some of the stocks that have exhibited. More volatility, so they were not in any of the the so-called um, uh, bat stocks, um, Baidu, Alibaba, or Tencent, um, but were looking, beginning to look at those as valuations came back at the end of last year. Thank you, Chris. Some really helpful suggestions. And see Taha's full interview of Ayers Ebrahim in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle, the website, uh, and also see this week's issue for uh, our profile on First State Stewart Asia Pacific Leaders Fund.
Over the six months to the end of February 2019, UK private investors took more than six billion out of funds overall. But one area that bucked the trend was passive tracker funds, which made net sales of 4.3 billion. Taha, you've been looking at this. First of all, for the benefit of our listeners who maybe aren't um, sort of into their passives, what exactly are passive tracker funds? So these are funds that they they track. So they're called tracker funds because they track an index or a benchmark. And what that means is that there is no one behind uh, the investments picking stocks or taking, uh, making conviction uh, bets on different companies or weightings. And benchmarks are generally weighted just to have the most and the largest companies. And this is called market cap weighting. So basically, so basically, if they buy, for example, what all the shares in the FTSE 100. Yes. And yeah, yeah, do so what the FTSE 100 overall does. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And they will. Yeah. And and, and the FTSE 100, if uh, how it's worked is it weights more to the largest companies so yeah and you're just buying more of the largest companies and it's kind of systematic and there's no one going no i want to buy less of this or more of that so you just you're tracking a an index like the fossil 100 or the s&p 500 and um they've so they become very popular and, and a lot of this is driven by costs so for example the cheapest equity etf and exchange exchange traded fund which is a passive product cost about 0.04 percent whereas the average um for kind of a uk equity fund that's actively managed is between 70 uh, 0.7 and 0.8 percent so you know there's a huge gulf in price between these two products that said the active equity funds presumably could outperform the index but these tracker funds can't theoretically yes of course they have the ability to i suppose but yeah a, a tracker fund will never outperform an index it can, it, in fact it will only ever marginally underperform because of cost now you mentioned um they become popular because they're cheap um, which is great. But um, there's obviously been a recent uptick in the popularity. Is that just because they're cheap or what What else is, um, you know, what's so great about these uh, uh, things? I would, I would say it's a myriad of factors, but I... I would also stress, I think, underpinning all of this is is the fact that they are cheap. So it's and the cost is the long term trend of popularity. So over the last ten years, they've gotten increasingly, increasingly popular. And the basic thing being that they are cheap and active. The average active manager isn't worth it um, because you're paying a lot more, and the average active manager often cannot outperform the benchmark by enough to warrant paying that additional amount. But there are also different factors here as well. Um, markets have been on the rise uh, over the past few years and started this year as we talked about so it's actually seemed um, easier just to go well actually markets are going up so I'll just get a passive product that's doing well enough you know right 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 up the market no yeah. absolutely you know if everything's yeah. going up you don't need to be paying the the additional amount to, to try and get a little bit more everything's fine um, but there is another thing to this and that's more linked to the current situation we're in now and we have been in for kind of the past I suppose 15 months or so and that's it's starting to look as if it's the end of the market cycle. And by that, I mean, you know, if we look talk about the market cycle, it goes up and then it kind of comes down at the end. And we're at that kind of inflection point where in the next, well, in the near future, no one can ever put a time frame on this. In the near future, you, you start to expect to be in a, a kind of longer term bear period where markets will fall. And what happens at this kind of inflection point is that markets have their last big rally and their last big jump and it's entirely momentum driven. It's not driven by the fundamentals of stocks and it's also driven by company, very cyclical companies that active fund managers tend not to buy. So what we have seen is that active managers have underperformed their benchmarks. So the average active manager for the in the US sector, the UK sector, emerging markets, global, have all underperformed the benchmark over the past 12 months. And this has been seen as a driving factor as to why people have been picking passive products of active. And uh, going back to the figures you mentioned in the, in, in the introduction to this, have been taking a lot of money out of active deliberately and putting it into passive for the same kind of equity exposure. But yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing right now. 
Okay, so um, there is um, some tactical thinking behind this. Is it a good strategy? Yes and no, I suppose. Uh, yes, because, you know, if you're getting better performance for cheaper, then it obviously is a good strategy. And no, because inflection points are never a good time to start making these kind of decisions. Because, yeah, while this last period that we've, we just talked about, active managers, on average, I would stress, um, there are people, uh, plenty of managers that do outperform, um, on average will underperform the benchmark, at that inflection point and when things go south they will also have more opportunity to outperform on the downside now what that means is is that most active manager outperformance over the long term of a benchmark is actually being defensive rather than beating the benchmark in the up market which is actually quite hard to do especially when it's momentum driven so if you now if if you at this moment in time if you think no i'm going to switch to passive what you are guaranteeing is that you're going to w- take all of the falls in the market that come for in the next in, well you're going to take all the falls in the market in the near future whereas an active manager might have done better having bought at the top yes mm. okay chris um do you think investors should avoid passive funds at this point in the market and economic cycle well, um, speakers a house that that has worked with active managers for 27, 28 years, I, I think it, it demonstrates the fact that we still believe that if you have a process that can identify high quality um, active managers, and, and no one can disagree with the statement that the average active um, fund manager is going to underperform, but we aspire to, to find the excellent rather than mm. the average. And I suppose um, I, I would always add here is the average active manager doesn't exist. They are managers all around, but the average is just a statistic. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and and yeah. I don't disagree with that, Leonora, mm. but, but, but um, if one aspires to identify mm. the excellent, um, and we believe that with uh, resources, uh, with the, the investment that we got, the experience that we got, we do have uh, and can demonstrate that we have had an ability to identify that, they will definitely outperform uh, a, a passive manager. So um, we, don't, we don't believe that unless we conclude that um, it is unlikely that one is going to add value by using an active manager, uh, that uh, one should always use active. The other point that I think is really interesting here is is one of cost. Now, I think there's a really, really important distinction between price and value. So uh, what we would say to clients is, is if we can find an active fund manager and not overpay to access them, and one of the opportunities clients of St. James's Place have um, is that we can access active managers cheaper than they're available in the broader marketplace because we are a, a big institutional client of these fund managers, um, then some of the cost persuasion of using passive funds is removed. And if those active managers then outperform form, you get the double whammy of, of, of not having to overpay, but you get active managers who are increasing uh, a, a one of our clients' wealth over the, over the medium to longer term. Uh, that said, would you sort of concede that maybe there, if, if it so maybe sometimes the situations when a passive fund could be better? Yeah, I mean, if I look at something uh, like uh, UK gilts, mm. I think it's really hard to successfully identify a capability to run a UK gilts portfolio actively. Mm. Uh, and therefore, our strategy is, to all intents and purposes, to run it passively. Um, but I think in, and certainly in some parts of the market, say US large cap equities, mm. it is harder because the markets are relatively sensibly priced. 
exist, but I'm a fundamental disbeliever in the efficient market hypothesis. I call it the inefficient market hypothesis um, because I think as we saw and we were talking about it in the previous conversation about the movement in markets, markets move around very substantially and what you want is an active fund manager who is able to identify the really good opportunities Mm -hmm. at the right time rather than be dictated to their ownership levels by the market capitalization of that individual company. So um, going back to talking about the, uh, the the Asian tech stocks, right at the peak of the market last June, there would have been more money going into Asian, Asian tech, the, Bali, the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and then less money going in at the end of the year, which is actually exactly the reverse of what one would have wanted to have done as an active manager. Uh, you mentioned gilts mm. as one area where you might do it. So do you think that passive funds then are maybe a good way to get exposure to bonds and fixed income more widely? I, I think outside of, of, of uh, UK government bonds, UK guilds, um, there are plenty of opportunities for, for, for active managers to to um, to make really good attractive returns. For, for So for the fund, for the St. James's Place managers, we have a number of managers mm. managing corporate bond portfolios. Okay. So, what would be examples of so, some so, of so a, a manager like um, Oaktree, which is a US-based mm. A manager investing in in um, companies that that offer high yields in in fixed income. Mm. We uh, we work with a, a a range of different fixed income managers, uh, and what they offer is an uh, an ability to identify a company where the credit paying history of that company is really good, mm. and therefore um, again a bit like an equity manager choosing a good or bad company, yeah. and hopefully identifying good companies. They identify good credits and include those in their portfolios. And are there any UK um, bond managers that... Um we, 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 we mainly work with global companies mm-hmm. and a lot of them are based in, in, in the United States. So, uh, and indeed, we've got, a, we've got a fixed income manager based in uh, Copenhagen in Denmark. Okay. Um, uh, who so, is that? So that's a company called Capital Four. Uh, yes. They've got real yeah. expertise in, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in managing European bonds in the high yield sector. But there is a, there is a small uh, business in, in, in London called 24 Asset Management, yep. um, who we know really well. And they, they've very successfully run um, a, a portfolio for our clients for, for some period of time. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Some really helpful points. And see the IC Top 100 funds for more on funds run by 24 Asset Management. If you are self-employed, it's likely that you don't have a regular income stream. So saving for your retirement might not be your top priority. But if you don't, you might not be able to finance the lifestyle you would like in retirement. Zayani, you've been looking at this if you're self-employed and don't have an employer pension, how can you save for retirement? Um, yeah, hi, Lena. So one of the best ways to save would be an individual savings account or an ISA. There are several different types, including a cash and a stocks and shares ISA. For many self-employed people, the biggest concern is variable income. The great thing about an ISA is because there's no minimum holding period, you can access your money before the age of 55. Um, Also, because of the variable income, it's difficult to know how much can be put aside for long-term saving. Um, So you don't have to put regular lump sum uh, deposits in. You can put a huge lump sum in. There are tax-free investment returns and withdrawals as well. And um, the annual allowance is £20,000, which is decent. Um, And that can be spread across different ISAs. So you can put a little in a cash ISA, some in a stocks and shares ISA, which just kind of offers you um, the the fluidity that you might need. You can switch providers and not lose your status either. And um, that status can then be inherited by your spouse. Okay. But are there any disadvantages in saving for retirement via 
an ISA? Yeah, so I think the most important one is that because you can withdraw money before 55, the temptation to use it um, is there and that might leave you with less for retirement. If you don't use your annual allowance, it can't be carried forward to the next year. You may also be charged to change your investments or to move to another provider and there can be restrictions on the investments available to you. Although you can, your spouse can inherit it, there's an inheritance tax and you can't have a joint account. Okay. So if you don't save for retirement, Vinaiza, how else could you do it if you're self-employed? So another great option is a self-invested personal pension or a SIP. This is where you choose a provider and you choose when and how your money is invested. There are different types, and but generally the more investment options one offers you, the higher the charges for it. You get tax relief at your marginal rate of income and you can choose to contribute through regular deposits or one-off lump sums again. If you come from employment, as most self-employed individuals do, then you might have multiple pension pots, in which case uh, SIP allows you to combine them all into one. And like a regular pension, you can withdraw up to 25% of the value of the pension tax-free. And in some cases, you can carry forward up to three years of your annual allowance. That's helpful. But are there any um, disadvantages in uh, saving retirement via SIP? Yeah, you have to shop around. So the, the minimum investment mm. amount is different for each one. You can't access the money before 55. So if you mm. did need it for an emergency, it's not there. Um, you may have to pay two sets of fees. So one for the wrapper and then one for um, charges of the investments in the SIP. Um, and there may be exit fees as well. And like a workplace um, pension, the income that you would draw from there is taxable. After your 25% tax free entitlement. Thank you, Zayani. Some um, really good points there. And see this week's money section of the website for her full guide on how to save for retirement if you're self-employed. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see this week's Investors Chronicle or the website for more on Asian equities and when to use passive and active funds. Thank you for listening and have a great bank holiday. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.